Welcome to Women, Life, and Science with Cecilia Zapata-Harms. Over the next hour, you will hear Cecilia and her guests discuss, share, and inspire you with the stories of life, careers, challenges, successes, stories about their own lives. Now, here is Cecilia. Good morning, Women, Life, and Science listeners. Happy Valentine's Day, or should I say Galentine's Day, since it is about women, life, and science. Um, after all, we are a community of empowered women and a think tank of great ideas and innovation. I hope you're all enjoying 2024 so far, even though it's already mid-February. It's starting to kind of ramp up again. <laughs> and of course, I appreciate your continued support uh, for listening on our show. So we're just a month and a half before our inaugural Women, Life, and Science conference on April 30th here in Greenville, South Carolina. I hope you're registering soon and uh, um, you can view the conference information and registration at wlscience.com. Lots of logistics and promotions to do still, but definitely we are underway. So got back from several meetings in Europe, a business trip, and I still haven't completely caught up with my brain, but I think I'm getting there. Please be patient with me if I start rambling on with nonsense, because, um, you know, you know how that goes with jet lag. Anyway, have you ever had the experience when you got to a place where you've never been or visited before and felt as if you just landed at home? I'm looking at Anne right now, and I'm sure she's she's had that experience. That's what Basel, Switzerland felt uh, like to me. That's where we were on a business trip. There was just something about the place, and I guess I'll just have to figure it out uh, or what, what that's what that's all about. Um, the last few months, if you all haven't noticed, we have had a diverse group of guests on our show. We've delved into topics that otherwise we won't normally hear about. And as I look back now, it has definitely been very interesting. And that's the main reason Women, Life, and Science podcast is all about anyway and was formed, a forum to showcase stories outside of our immediate spheres. Well, today's topic and guest is another uh, to showcase on our show. Our guest is Anne Parson. She is a science journalist who specializes in the environment, medicine, and technology. We're going to talk a little bit about The Birds of Dog, a uh, historical novel based on mostly true events. Um, it's her first work of fiction, which I don't know, Anne, it, it's, it's definitely more historical than fiction, but I, I, I get I get why that's said. And um, of course you have, uh, she's had previous books include the, the Proteus Effect, Stem Cells and Their Promise for Medicine, which was selected for Library Journal's annual list of best science books and Decoding Darkness, The Search for the Genetic Causes of Alzheimer's Disease. And that's my next book to read. Co-authored with Harvard Medical School neuroscientist, uh, Rudolf Tanzi, the founder of the New Bedford Science Cafe, and I have to visit that cafe soon enough, uh, a monthly meetup between a guest scientist and, and the public. Uh, she lives in South Dartmouth, Massachusetts. Welcome, Anne, to Women, Life, and Science. I'm so honored to have you here today. 
It's lovely to be here. Thank you for having me. And um, you got snow. <laughs> we Lots did. Lots of snow. Right now it's concrete, I think. It turned uh, very icy last night. Jeez, I'm so sorry. You mentioned it's like six six inches? Six maybe? inches, yeah. but it's six inches of concrete. <laughs> oh, hopefully a thaw happens soon enough or the temperature goes up a little bit. It is sunny, though. I could see from your window. You know, February here is really the snow month, and the Indians called the February moon the snow moon. So there's a reason for snow in February. Nature. <laughs> Nature. Exactly. Exactly. Well, uh, here in Greenville, South Carolina, it's sunny also. Uh, we've had some some kind of strange weather, you know, really, really cold, like in the 20s, which is somewhat rare. Um, but uh, uh, it's starting to kind of warm up a little bit. I think spring is, I shouldn't, I shouldn't say that too quickly, but I think spring is around the corner. Anyway, so, and um, I always like to ask, our guests to tell us a little bit about themselves. Tell us your story, where you're from, family, all that good stuff. So um, I live down here on the south coast of Massachusetts, but um, I was born actually in Blue Hill, Maine. And when I when I think of the book that you're about to talk about, The Birds of Dog, my sensibility for nature, I think, really comes from the state of Maine, having grown up in really a, a very rural environment next to the ocean. Um, but so somewhere along the line, I just picked up the, the science bug. Mm. Um, I was head of the, the um, science club at high school, and but never wanted to go into the laboratory. But it's interesting, I've always wanted to communicate science. And um, it's come up over and over again, and it showed the most. My whole career has been on communicating science, be it writing books, articles. Also, you mentioned the New Bedford Science Cafe. So there's this very cool network of science cafes all over the world. And a lot of people don't know about them, but NOVA has a global map of where they're where they're located. They're everywhere. There's one in Pakistan. There's several in Africa. Oh wow! Um, more and more here in this country, um, there are monthly meet up, meetups with a scientist. So we just had one last week with an Audubon scientist talking about horseshoe crabs and um, how they aren't doing very well along our eastern coast because they're being grabbed up. For actually blood testing, their blood uh, helps test other, I'm sorry, vaccines. Mm. Anyway, we have um, really interesting conversations. People can start these in their hometown. It's a great way to up uh, the volume on science. You're giving me an idea. <laughs> I have some girlfriends who, um, uh oh, here comes Cecilia again with her ideas. Uh, because I don't think there is one here in in South Carolina, so I, I I may I may just start one, just just to because we have you know I mean some oh I'm I'm sure there are and what I'm I just made a note to send you and I'll do some research I'm sure there are science cafes in North Carolina somewhere okay and they're okay. so easy come to me and I'll help you set one up no, oh no, yeah no budget 
It's free to everybody. Oh, I would love that. Definitely. We'll definitely talk about that. Uh, I will definitely reach out and sort of get that started and maybe have you come out this way or we'll do it by Zoom. I don't know. We'll figure it out. Anyway, so um, you got into scientific journalism when? Uh, Right around what age? Yeah, well, I always knew I wanted to be a writer, um, you know, starting in in high school and college. And um, I was an English major. Right after college, I started um, working as a freelance uh, photography reviewer and uh, did that for the Boston Phoenix, which was a great so-called rag back in those days and many other publications. But then I began realizing I didn't want to be an art critic. And more and more, I started writing on the environment and science for many different publications. I remember there was one day One of my proudest where I was as a freelancer in the New York Times, Boston Globe, and the Boston Herald, all on different environmental stories, which, you know, was fabulous. Um, So I've always just been glued more and more to environmental subjects. Um, I woke up this morning uh, thinking I was going to contact my editor at the Globe about one particular subject. I won't go into it with you, but sustainable seafood in my part of the world is really important. Uh-huh. Yes. And um I've been writing a lot on on that and I just came up with another idea there. So um I'm not sure I'm ever going to do another I don't think I'll do another novel, put it that way. Oh, maybe, really? Maybe, yeah. Really? A little bit more work involved, I guess. No, actually, uh, it was so much fun. We'll get into that, but writing <laughs> really is fun. Yeah, it reminds me of when you're skiing, you're sort of taking off on top of different moguls, and suddenly you're changing direction. You can capture things and bring them into the story. It's really, it was a delight to do it. Now, do you have a science background, Anna? I mean, to no, be a science, scientific journalist. There, uh, there's definitely some gene in our family on my father's side. Um, I had a, a grandfather with seven brothers, one more brilliant than the other. And one of them wrote a book on cosmology. Mm. So they all could have been scientists. They weren't. But Wow. Fascinating. See, when you listen to your calling... It doesn't really, sometimes you really don't need to study for a very long time to be an expert in something. Yeah, people ask me if I have a science degree. No, but, um, you know, English major, no advanced degree. And when you're a science journalist, you learn so much. Every story is teaching you something. And um all different sciences appeal to me, but as I say, environment, especially these days. Yeah. So let's go into the book because first of all, before um, when I saw the title, I wasn't sure what it was about until I picked up the book. And when I first started reading it, uh, you know, again, like I said, I wasn't sure exactly what it was about and then as i read on i mean it just captivated me i couldn't really put it down um uh, but i had to put it down because otherwise you know because i have to go to work (laughs) 
but I was so drawn into the story and the character of Catherine, um, Catherine Pickering, who, I mean, she's a fictional character, right? She is. Yeah. yeah. It's confusing because my narrators, two of them are fictional. All the other characters are real life. So yeah. <clears throat> good for you for figuring that out. Well, it was, it, it took me a little bit. Um, and of course, I, I try not to read the, 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 the information that was given to me because I, I always like to read the book itself before I yes. actually read um, any other reviews on what it's about and what have you. So just, just so that I know uh, that I pick up a few things myself, right? So I know that it's um, history in the early days of natural science and early scientists. Um, and oh my gosh, <laughs> the Boston Society of Natural History, which today is no longer, I know that I think they closed their doors in, in the 30s, oh, no, right? It, it evolved oh. into the Boston Science Museum. It just changed names. Ah. So it's basically the uh, yeah, that's the history started as the Boston Society of Natural History. Yeah, but it's changed utterly from what it used to be. Well, so for me, as I was reading through that, even just Catherine's role in the museum and the kind of museums that were started or developed or people just decided, oh, we're just going to gather all the things that are out there. Right. And then start something, you know, those curiosity shops, right? Uh, that that we hear about. I think in Seattle, there there actually is still to this day is a place where people go in. Um, it's it's by the waterfront. It's called the Old Curiosity Shop, and it's literally when when I was reading that part of the book, as uh, she as Catherine was describing some of the things that people were bringing, it brought me back to that old curiosity shop because well, it was yeah, interesting you, it's um there's an interesting history those uh cabinet cabinets of curiosity uh with all diverse items actually go date back in europe to the 15 and 1600s this is way before names uh species were named and so or understood in a sort of um classical family case but they go way, way back. The neat thing about Boston Society of Natural History began in 1830 was these men in Boston said, no longer do we want a, a muddle of things. We want to get inside of these species and specimens and figure out what they are and how they relate to each other. So it was the first place in Boston to actually approach specimens in a formal way. Yes. Um and some of the people that were um, examining those specimens or gathering them were, they, they really didn't have, I mean, they had a curiosity about nature and how things work, but, you know, this, the, the field of science, nature science was not really uh, around yet. Is, no, right? That, yeah, that was one of the most interesting, remarkable things to me is that to understand how really early, uh, how how recent I should say science is, it didn't become a real discipline until the early 1800s. The word biology wasn't coined until something like 
1810 and not in real use until 1850s. Um, you just had these subdivisions of science coming, uh, getting going by the mid 1800s. So um, yeah, the word science um, was scarcely in use before 1800. In fact, they called scientists back in those days, scientifics. Don't you love scientifics. it? Scientifics. <laughs> my gosh, yes. I, I have this picture in my, in my head right now of the nature scientifics um, out there, out in the wilderness, trying, you know, just looking at things and gathering some weird stuff. And yep. um, yeah. So many collectors and, you know, it was important for me to tell the story. I don't tell it that much, but Carl Linnaeus back in the mid 1700s, he's the one that finally gave the world a classification system mm. of, you know, saying where each species is going to have two Latin names. So we're Homo sapiens, for instance. Correct. Yeah. Um, but it wasn't until that point where finally some sort of classification entered into uh, life and all the people who were collecting stuff could finally start putting in them in their own family or genre, uh, genus and stuff like that. Um, otherwise, it was a muddle. Mm -hmm. Okay, so we're going to take a quick break and we'll be back because we're going to dive into the story of the real people in the book, uh, which to me was just, again, Fascinating. So we'll be right back, everyone. Third Eye Bio LLC marries expertise from across several fields to create a novel platform that assists startup, small, and mid-cap companies attempting to break into the fast-paced biotech sector. With over 30 years in the biotech and life science industries, they have the experience, knowledge, and relationships to help architect and guide your company's goals and initiatives. They have developed a comprehensive approach, each being led and managed by seasoned industry professionals, covering all the necessary elements needed for new company success and market breakthrough. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. Become a member of voiceamerica.com. It's easy and best of all, it's free. Start out by going to our homepage or any of our channels and click register at the top. Once you've created an account and signed in, you can create your own custom library, opt into our newsletter, search by show, host, guest, or topic of interest, or browse millions of hours of content across all of our Voice America radio channels. Membership gets you more. Visit voiceamerica.com today to get started and tailor the listening experience to your taste. Follow Voice America at Facebook.com forward slash Voice America for juicy updates from your favorite radio shows and podcasts. It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com.
You are listening to Women, Life, and Science. Have a question for Cecilia or her guests? Email Cecilia at Cecilia.zh at WLScience.com. Now back to the show with Cecilia. We are back and we have with us Ann Parson, author of The Birds of Dog. Um, highly recommend for everybody to pick up the book, actually, especially if you're a nature lover, if you love to garden. We were just during the break, we were talking a little bit about how uh, my husband and I sort of started um, enjoying uh, the, the different uh, characteristics and behavior of our feathered friends out there in the wild. Um, and in the book, um, you you have some fictional, a couple of fictional characters, but really majority of the book were uh, stories about actual individuals at, at that time. Uh, Charles Pickering was, uh, is one of them. Um, so Tell me a little bit about him. He he I never really got the sense that because you know Catherine was writing all those letters, but I can only imagine where he was because he was in a voyage for a long time. Um so tell 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 me a little yes. bit about him. Um so Charles Pickering um grew up in Salem and ended up living around Boston <clears throat> and you know, so, so many people have forgotten these figures of the past scientists. He was one of America's leading naturalists. He was mm -hmm. born in 1805, and um, he went to medical, Harvard Medical School, but realized he didn't want to go into medicine and began just collecting a lot of things and becoming and was actually one of the first people to be hired as a naturalist by a Philadelphia Institute Natural History place. But then he was asked in 1838 to be the lead scientific aboard the U.S. Exploring Expedition, which was this country's first major uh, voyage of discovery to the Southern Ocean, the South Seas. And so he was gone for four years from 1838 to 1842 when it finished. And my character, fictional character, Catherine, is a curator, a volunteer uh, curator's assistant at the Boston Natural uh, Society of Natural History. And she's writing these letters to Charles, filling him in on what is going on at home, what is going on at the society, you know, which collector is bringing in what um, and who's speaking about what. And we don't hear much from Charles. We read occasional real journal entries that he wrote, I turn into letters back. But um, that's kind of the structure where there's correspondence going on. And I was finding so many interesting stories from those days, Boston related that I'd stick those stories in to her letters. And then this sounds a little bit complicated. If you're writing a letter, you can't tell the whole story. Yeah. So I realized that I needed a second narrator. And that second narrator is a voice speaking from the perspective of 1895, looking back and filling in the whole story. 
So I'll give you an example of the stories that I tell. I tell the real story of in 1839, um, word of Daguerre's new photographic system hit the Mm -hmm. newspapers in this country. And so did Samuel Morse's invention uh, of the telegraph. They were reported back to back. And there are stories connected to those that I go into. There's one other scientist in Boston who started writing the papers and saying, no, I invented the telegraph. Um, Meanwhile, Samuel Morse is meeting with Daguerre in Paris and Daguerre's other business burned down. I mean, you can't make these stories up. No. Boston related and what the um, invention of both photography and the telegraph did for this country are, are just amazing. So I, I get carried away. <laughs> no, I love it. Well, I can imagine why you would care, get carried away because, um, and, I, and I thought the dynamic between Catherine and the second narrator, what, what was interesting there to me is that you have the letters from Catherine and then at the end of it, you have the second narrator that sort of, Yeah, sort of verifies the things that she said in her letter uh, from, you know, because he's he's more in the future, right? I'll give you a really good example of a story where those two narrators helped me tell the whole story. So there was this Captain Sims from Tennessee who in the early 1800s came up with the idea that the earth was hollow. All right. And... Mm -hmm. um, This was not a new theory. You can trace it back into the 1700s, but he wanted the Navy to uh, fund an an exploring expedition, which back then the Navy never did, but eventually the Navy realizes we need an exploring expedition for other reasons. And that's why they did the exploring expedition in 1838. But Sims, so Sims was really responsible for getting that feeling that motivating that sailing voyage. And and the fact that back in the early 1800s, people still thought the world was hollow and that maybe vegetation was growing in it. Again, (laughs) it's just remarkable. We think of these things way back in the past, but that just was early 1800s. Yeah, and to think that we forget it, right? So I have Catherine talk about a friend of Sims who comes to the Boston Society of Natural History speaking of this story. And then I have that outer voice from 1895 looking back and giving much more information about Sims. And it was called his hollow earth theory. Uh-huh. I I, I saw that. And um, it also, it reminded me also, just uh, oh yes, I have forgotten that that was a belief, because there were no there were no substantial proof at the time what what the world was about. Everybody was exactly. still discovering it, right? Exactly. Yeah, there was phenomena so- everywhere that people didn't understand, and it led to a lot of misinformation about species, about places, um, just. Mm-hmm. Briefly, I mean, the, the species were so not known that word, you know, the birds were still named 
white bird, black bird, red bird, orange bird. Orange bird. There were no 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 names for them yet. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. You also had a character, and, I, and the character's name escapes me, or not a character, but the uh, someone in history escapes me, who um, loves hunting, but also had a pet duck. Or was it a goose? I can't um, remember now. Yes, goose. Goose. That, that is, that it to me, that story still gives me shivers, and I tie it into my natural, Boston Society of Natural History story. His name was Reverend Forsythe. Yes, yes. And he lived in Scotland. He was a minister. And what became the overall arching theme for my book, and uh, I sound like I'm going in many different directions, but the book does, well, it is about technology versus nature. Yeah. And the more that technology is invented, the more damaging it becomes for nature. And as I go into guns a lot. So this fourth foresight story, true story, was that he would get really upset. He kept missing when he'd go out, even though he loved geese and he had a pet goose, he'd still go out and hunt like everybody did in those days, early 1800s. And he'd keep m missing birds. And a, a, a flintlock a mechanism for a gun back that let off a little puff of smoke which would um, alert the bird that the bullet was coming and the bird would fly off. So uh, Forsythe thought if I could invent a different mechanism for a gun that was quieter and didn't do a puff of smoke, I bet I can kill more birds. So he came up with a new mechanism called percussion lock, where it's more um, flint against flint causing mm -hmm. a spark rather than gunpowder exploding. Mm -hmm. And this mechanism ended up ending up, ended up on the battlefield, um, guns for, for killing people. So mm -hmm. this innocent, you know, back then they thought birds, uh, there were so many birds in the world that uh, you couldn't ever begin to shoot them all. And uh, those days it didn't matter. And right. Well, are. we didn't. Yes. And, and I think just to kind of a little segue into the, the the future, now we have technology that I think we're a bit more mindful of what our world is about and that as we innovate new technology, new um, inventions, that it it. Um, promotes the sustain the sustainability of, of our world, which I think is is very important for all of us to to really remember. That, that's such a good point. Uh, yeah. You know, we do need to become even more mindful. Um, I just heard that there are going to be pretty soon a million satellites going around Earth. Mm. And wow. um, they dropped debris. And it's just another form of littering. I hate to say it. Um, I, also <laughs> yeah. think, I also think automobiles are a technology that are way out of control. Anyways, yeah. but you're right. We need to be more mindful. And that certainly was my take. It was so interesting to go back and see these technologies instantly being created. And 
they didn't have to um, regulate them back then. Now we're we have to regulate more and more. Mm-hmm. So other um, uh, people in the book uh, that also fascinated me. One was Mr. Audubon himself. <laughs> yeah. Yes, yeah. Uh, who apparently is not a very nice person. He really wasn't. He mellowed yeah. a bit as he got older, but um, <clears throat> he, you know, he's a pretty arrogant man. I think very good looking. I wish I could see him up close and personal, but, um, and he was in Boston quite frequently. And he actually was a friend of Charles Pickering's. Um, Charles, he, I think Audubon was uh, born in the mid 1700s. So he was older. Mm-hmm. Uh, or, um, but he looked to Charles Pickering every time he shot a bird that he didn't know what it was. He'd ask Charles, "What is this? Is this a new species?" Um, yeah, but, yeah. He um, he would brag that he could often, almost every day, shot a hundred birds, and this was all for the sake of his art. And you know, quite honestly, you, there weren't. Uh, binoculars back in those days to take out to the field to look at things Mm -hmm. and so the way of getting a bird down out of the sky was to to paint it was to shoot it um but he he did have no qualms about killing birds yeah it it, yes and um talk about a different view of of the name i mean the society of course is is um very popular in its conserva- conservation um, activities now, but I, I can only imagine. <laughs> There's that discussion going on whether to change the name, and I think yeah. one or two Audubon chapters have changed their name to something yeah. else. And what do you think? I Sometimes I think a name is long enough used that it's a shame to give it up. Yeah, now I now it doesn't really matter. I mean, maybe earlier on, you know, but I think now they've definitely. Uh, I mean, their whole view is very different. I mean, I I consult the Audubon Society's website and books because I wanted to learn about a certain species of bird, um, and I think you know it, it's like the Encyclopedia Britannica. I mean, <laughs> it's you know, it's like a trade, I, it's like a trade yeah. name, and yeah. it doesn't remind me of vicious overkilling. No. It reminds me of uh, to be good to birds. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yes, exactly. And then you have other, you know, you also brought in um, Charles Dickens in there um, yeah. in your book, Let which I thought that was kind of interesting. You know, I I visited his house in uh, it's a museum now in in London, um, and and I can only imagine what that was about. Bring him. Yeah, it in. was so much fun bringing him in, and I keep to the dates that he was in in Boston. He was there around the eighteen forties twice or three times. And every time he came to town, it was just, you know, turned Boston upside down. People were always standing outside his hotel morning, noon, and night. I came across this true story about him, whereas he he went to someone's house for dinner and got quite drunk. And um, (laughs) they made sure when he came out of that house to wrap a scarf around his head 
and they led him back to the hotel because they didn't want him to be identified. <laughs> oh my gosh, and, I can only imagine. You know, I, I found these stories um, in great ways. I have to say, I Gale Research Databases opened up a, a free period of time for researchers like me. I could sit at home and, and go through their 19th century um, newspaper database and just uh, select all the Boston papers from that early period and read them starting with the front page, um, you know, page after page or do searches around say the word giraffe or around Charles Dickens or, and up came these stories. It was phenomenal. It's great fun. I, yeah. You know, you're reminding me, I, I did another interview not too long ago of another scientific journalist. Uh, he has a little bit of a science background, but he's more on the, um, uh, right now he's writing, well, his book was about the discovery of messenger RNA. And you, you, you and he are, have this look on your face whenever you're talking about your research. And it's this, this, right that that your eyes light up um whenever you guys are doing and you and you did the same thing it's it's exactly the same as that I saw from him when I was talking when he was telling me about the research that he and the interviews that he he had done okay yeah. we're gonna come to an, our second break and then uh we'll be back as we I have I have some more questions okay <laughs> we'll be right back Third Eye Bio LLC marries expertise from across several fields to create a novel platform that assists startup, small and mid-cap companies attempting to break into the fast-paced biotech sector. With over 30 years in the biotech and life science industries, they have the experience, knowledge and relationships to help architect and guide your company's goals and initiatives. They have developed a comprehensive approach each being led and managed by seasoned industry professionals covering all the necessary elements needed for new company success and market breakthrough. Voice America is on LinkedIn. Connect with us today. Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your own customizable library. Find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites. Plus, you get insider access with our newsletter. Membership gives you more. Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right. A little birdie told me Voice America is on X. Follow us at Voice America TRN. It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. You are listening to Women, Life, and Science. Have a question for Cecilia or her guests? Email Cecilia at Cecilia.zh at WLScience.com. Now back to the show with Cecilia. Okay, we are back. So much more to talk about. All right, and the other um, interesting character 
well, I shouldn't say character, a historical person on your book was John Wilkes Booth. Well, it was actually um, his father, Junius, Junius ah. uh, Booth, who was a yeah. famous, uh, famous actor of his day who was in Boston a lot. Um, John Wilkes was his son who assassinated um, Lincoln. But um, you kind of understand where the seeds of that come from. His yes, father. yes. The actor was very mercurial. Yes. And on stage in Boston would get into these duels, you know, as part of Henry the whatever Shakespeare and start stabbing his, his other, you know, people on stage for real. Before there were any kind of diagnosis for mental health issues, I, I, I imagine, um, especially in the theater world, right? That was a story and, and a true story that he just loved birds. Junius did. And um, he was out west somewhere and saw these pigeons being shot and got so upset that he went chasing after officials to give the birds a real burial uh, in a real burial ground. So mm. that's where that story comes in. I bring that story in. I, so many, um, I, the reason why I love this book is because you touch on um, true stories about individuals and their relation to nature. Because you never, you, you know, yeah. I mean, Charles Dickens, for instance, right? You know him of, of you know, his, his writing. Um, but we don't hear too much about his other passions. He really um, was very interested in natural history. And he was a good friend of a woman named Mary Anning who mm -hmm. was an early paleontologist and was digging up these huge bones in the south shore of England and um, realizing that, yes, extinction really happens, which was, that's that was very debatable back then in those mm -hmm. days. But yes, mm -hmm. Charles Dickens was deeply into all of this. And mm -hmm. I have him visit the Boston Society of Natural History and had so much fun with that little episode. He runs into a chemist from Yale and they have just a really fun chat about, well, it's called anomalocules. These were these little miniature things in water and the chemist mm -hmm. from Yale, Benjamin Silliman was in town uh, discussing these little creatures because Boston was at the point of setting up its water system and bringing in fresh water for, from ponds for drinking. So I had Dickens get into this discussion. You know, is it okay to drink my drinking water <laughs> because of these little creatures in it? So drink away, drink away. Yeah. It's okay. It's okay. It's okay. <laughs> oh my God. And well, yeah. And sometimes we do see those little things in, in there, right? <laughs> Especially if you're out in natural spring water. Um, yeah. And you need to drink. Uh, they're there. So, yeah. Oh, how? So this is your first fiction. Yes. Yes. Um, and you mentioned that you might not do another one. But how did you go about your research? How, what was the what was sort of like the thing that the catalyst that 
kind of took you uh, into writing this, the fiction. Yeah, it took me a long time. I kept thinking, first of all, the project went on for about 15 years, only because it was on a back burner a lot of that time. But in the beginning, I thought, is it should be fiction or nonfiction? And then mm. um, an agent gave me really good advice. She said, you know, you can be much more fluid with fiction. You have all these stories you want to tell. You can have fun getting those stories into the book with the fiction. And she was very right. If I had set out on a nonfiction journey, I never would have finished. I really, because <laughs> I'm, I'm very thorough with my nonfictions. So, you know, the book, for instance, on um, the Proteus effect stem cells and their problems for medicine, I give a whole history of where regenerative medicine really began way back in the past. And if I had done that in with with this, uh, I don't know. I just wouldn't have finished. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, just talking a little bit about the the stem cell book, um, you know, uh, that that's actually that's I I got the book as well. That's my next read. Oh, I, I did I did because hello, I'm in science. Um, but interesting, I was interested to see your view on regenerative um, research and because there has not been too many uh, and not very many successful ones out there. So um, it'd be interesting to to read what your, your thoughts are and who knows, maybe another scientist, I might recommend it to another scientist who are in that space and say, hey, she might have something here that you could use. <laughs> So anyway, I'm really, I'm proud of that book. I, it took a long time, but, um, you know, so much about it is capturing history. And you're right, mm -hmm. there haven't been many breakthroughs yet. But still, we know what the uh, blood stem cell is, we know what the bone stem cell is, and certain cells in the eye that are um, stem cells, they all lead to growth of new tissue. Which which are being used in the hospitals these days. So, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, it's doing okay. It just needs to go far further. Mm -hmm. Not fast enough, right? Right. Uh, yeah, a bit slow. Uh, the I can go into a lot of things <laughs> about that, <laughs> as you know. All right. So I've got one more. Um, kind of related to to the book and then we kind of we'll go into a little bit of rapid fire questions um the tro troculus oh right yes yes yeah. so yes. i've never heard of that and i and i have to look it up because it's a chimney swallow of some yes. sort and it was yes. uh, it's a real bird a real species but probably extinct i i'm careful to say probably no one knows for sure Mm -hmm. um, but they had this way of dropping down one of their young in a chimney. When they were leaving the chimney, first they'd be just tons of them in the chimney living there for a while. And when they left, they dropped one down as a gift to the people below. And I made a game out of this. Um, I have Catherine and um, Charles Pickering playing this game. The Troculus game, a story for a story, a, a Troculus for a Troculus, a story for a story. They exchanged 
uh, stories from nature, almost like giving each other a gift. Mm -hmm. It was one more device, quite frankly, way for me to bring even more stories into the book. So I have these little short stories about nature. I call them troculuses all the way through the book. And they're telling each other these troculuses. I'm trying to think of one. Um, and they're all animal related. Um, there's a wonderful, and they're mostly true. I found them in old newspapers. In Salem, um, a man was out uh, doing his garden, hoeing his garden, and up, up through the mud comes this turtle that he had put his initials on like 40 years before. And uh, this story made me cry because the man was just delighted to see his friend. He knew it was his initials. He knew it yeah. was the same turtle. He hadn't moved and the turtle hadn't moved. And oh. he ends up saying, you know, we're, we're a lot alike. We didn't have to go far in life uh, to be happy. Oh, oh yeah. And, yeah. I mean, that's one little truculus and a lot of them, as I say, are animal related. Yeah. Oh, I love that. I'm getting to remember that. <laughs> oh, anyway, <laughs> that's, that's a, that's a nice little pause. Yeah. yeah. That's a nice gift. Thank you for the gift. <laughs> That's great. Well, I chose Valentine's Day to be on with you because I'm in love with science. Yeah. Um, and I'm in love with James Cutting, another another character in the book. Mm -hmm. uh, so anyway. Yeah. Well, like I said, I highly recommend for everyone to, to pick up this book, especially if you're um, like us who love and are in love with science because otherwise if we're not then we wouldn't be in the place where we are today um so rapid fire questions you ready Anne? ready okay okay all right what was the best advice that that has been given to you and did you follow it <laughs> well i mentioned uh the advice to to do this as a fiction and i did follow that um there's a lot of advice I was given, which I didn't follow. <laughs> you know, an agent was interested in taking this book who said to me, but you have to get rid of so many stories and, and it has to be a page turner. Well, it is a page turner and I didn't get rid of any stories. <laughs> no, it was great. Oh, um, so, okay. This one's going to be hard. I think, I think. Because it was hard for me when somebody asked me this question. If if being a scientific writer was not to be for you, what do you think you should be doing now? Oh, my goodness. I know, right? That is hard. Um, it's hard. You know, it's hard because part of being a science writer is being an educator. So I would answer to you. Um, I would have loved to have been a teacher or here's something else. Um, an ecologist mm. field. and but all of that environmental jobs have blossomed since I was in school there's so many more physicians uh, yeah being uh, I would love to be a field biologist maybe yeah no I could see that I actually could see that see it wasn't so hard after all once you put your mind to it all right last question 
Um, and I, because we are women, life and science, this is to show if you were to have dinner with a famous woman in history and go as far back in history as you'd like, who would it be? And what will be your first question to ask her? Oh my gosh, that is a hard one. Um, you know, first of all, not going back that far as a character in my book, um, Harriet Hemingway, who began the Audubon Society. Um, and, you know, I guess I'd like to ask her what was the hardest part and your friends were all wearing bird feathers in their hats and, and <laughs> bird bodies on their hats. How did you convince them? And did you have some women who wouldn't give up their feathers? I bet. There's another Madame Curie who um, way back um, discovered radium. Um, I'd mm -hmm. like to ask her, I don't think she realized how dangerous it was. Uh, I don't think that was realized until much later on. I'm really uh, flimsy on that history. I'd mm -hmm. like to ask her more about that. There's the um, new, the, the movies out called Radium Girls. Mm -hmm. You know about that? I do, yes. Uh, those poor women who were painting the uh, faces of clocks with the radium yep. paint yep. to make them light up. All got cancer of the jaw and stuff like that. Yeah. So how did that happen? And yeah. Yeah. But that's a that's a hard question though. Many, uh, many it is. It really is. And sometimes um, you you kind of have to. Uh, it makes us research. I, I I love what I love about that question is that it makes us think about okay, wait, somebody said something. I'm going to research it and get to know that woman a little bit more. All right, and so we've. Oh, I told you. Oh yes. Okay, one more. Yes. Mary Anning, the paleontologist. The paleontologist, yes. Oh that was, God. I thought I thought you were going to tell her. Yeah, I thought you were going to mention her name. Yes. Yeah, I should have said that right out. She she was astonishing. There have been books. Uh, Tracy Chevalier, I think, wrote a book about her. Mm. Yeah, of course. Thank you. <laughs> well, fantastic. All right. We've reached the end of our show. Thank you so much, Anne, for sharing your journey and uh, with all of us. Um, for those who want to learn more about you, it's Ann Parson without the S. So annparson.com. That's your website. In the meantime, everyone, thank you for listening to Women, Life, and Science. See you next week and stay fabulous and true. Thank Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Women, Life, and Science. We hope Cecilia and her guests enlightened you as you walk your own path. 